2: joining us on behalf of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, I'd like to welcome you we have four great panelists with us today and before we start the conversation just let me give a quick introduction of each one. First, we have moshe schwartz with us co-author of the report and president of etherton and associates uh, moshe has deep experience in acquisition policy based on his time at the government accountability office and congressional research service and working with the hill and congress And I think he's definitely considered one of the giants in acquisition policy. It's really nice to have him here. And I was super fortunate to work with him on this report. So welcome Moshe. We also have Margaret Boatner here with us. She handles strategy and acquisition reform for the army, which is a super important position which handles. Things like how DOD can better leverage consortia. So we're really lucky to have her here today and get her insights on that question. Representing a non-traditional defense contractor, we have David Semnick. He's got a great story about how a non-traditional defense contractor was able to leverage consortia, participate in a prototype, transition to production. And actually that story is one of the case studies in the report, case study B as I remember, Um, and then finally. We have the legend of consortia with us, Charlie Suzette I mean, he was right there from the beginning of the first consortia and has been working to p- improve acquisition for the Department of Defense and the whole of government for almost 30 years. And really appreciative to have him here with us. There's probably not a question that you can ask that he can't answer. And so he's really my ace in the hole. So. Thank you, Charlie for being with us today. And we really appreciate your support of this report in providing data and providing interviews along with other consortia who did that because this report is based on data and that's super important. So without further ado, that's enough talking from me. I want to kick us off and I'm going to start with the author of the report, Moshe Schwartz, the first line in the report says, this is not another report on OTs. Tell me why that's important
0: and why this report and why now sure thanks stephanie and before i start thank you for writing the report with me and thank you to george mason for publishing the report and hosting this event and all for my fellow panelists it's really great to be on there with you and i think the answer is you know, there have been a lot of reports on ots some very good ones in fact i see in the audience people from csis they have a great report on ot data that came out a few months ago which is really worth a read but over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of talk about consortia and consortium OTs. And those conversations, for example, frequently revolved around the issue of data and transparency. And there were assertions that there is no visibility and there's not enough data. And so I think what we wanted to do here is test that thesis. Is there data available? What does the data say? What is out there? And what is the role of consortia? Because all the discussion of OTs was leaving out a whole discussion of the role of consortia, and that's why we wanted to do it. So we went to the consortia, and they were generally forthcoming with data. In some cases, one of the responses we got from consortia was, we have data to share with you, we just have to clear our data requests with our DOD customers. So that's why I wanted to do the report, and we found that. And I guess I want to make four points about the report, and what we found, the first one is exactly that on data and transparency. We found that there is a fair amount of data there, and there is data that can be used for transparency, but it's not really being gathered and leveraged and used for that management and visibility function the way that it could be. And we can talk more about that in discussions. The second thing that we found is consortia absolutely help with recruiting companies to the defense industrial base. And I know that David, who's on the panel, can tell you his story. But I'll even tell you this past Sunday, I was at a baseball game with a friend who recently joined a company with this great technology. And I said to him, I said, Gene, you've got this great technology. Have you thought about going to the Department of Defense? And he said, no, I've got limited resources. I can't spend it on that. I have to choose my targets carefully. And I said to him, do you know about consortia? And he said, no, I don't. And I told him about consortia, how you can join it, and they will help you through the process, and they will notify you of, of possibilities. And he said, huh. I didn't know about it that's worth the five hundred dollars to join to me that is worth the resources to see if those are options for me that's an example of how consortia can really entice people could dod do this themselves and reach out in theory maybe but do they have the resources and are they doing it and the answer is no consortia absolutely add a value there one data point that we have in our report is that there are over 4,500 companies who are non-traditional defense contractors participating in just the 12 consortia that we got data from who focus on DOD. Now, to couch it a little bit, those 4,500, the term non-traditional defense contractor does include some companies that are working with the Department of Defense, but regardless of how you look at, that's a big number. So clearly, consortia are bringing people to the table, and we'll hear more about that from David. The third point I wanna make about it is that consortia help with collaboration, and that's what we've seen. So if you look at the report, we have case study A, where in 2019, DOD released a solicitation for developing, I believe a military grade propellant ingredient, and they received no actionable responses to their solicitation. They ended up going to a consortia, had a collaborative event, got a lot of feedback from the industry players there, amended the acquisition strategy with the feedback they received, and those DoD officials said that they believe that based on that, they now have a good acquisition strategy and will get industry results. That is a great example of what a consortia can do. Now, again, could DoD in theory be doing a lot of this? Maybe, but it doesn't matter if they can be doing it in theory. I think the question is, are consortia adding? and? Our evidence in in that case was they're clearly adding a benefit. And then the fourth point I want to make is consortia seem to clearly be able to help with market research and industry outreach, particularly when a surge capability or quick turnaround is necessary. And we've lived through, unfortunately, a time that created the penultimate example of a surge capacity that is needed immediately with COVID and Operation Warp Speed. And we have a quote from General Perna who led Operation Warp Speed and what he said, and I'm quoting from what exactly he said, he said, warp speed would not have gone at warp speed if it had not been for the consortia. And I would say here, even in theory, DOD can't do that because what these consortia very often are are a gathering a group that's revolving around a particular technology and so when an emergency comes up an emergent issue comes up that DoD or anybody else didn't expect of course those people that have been working in that milieu of that technology for 5, 10, 15 years are going to know all the players and have those relationships in place and to be able to tap those quickly and get the word out is great and the report talks about that case study and how that worked So I guess those were the four points I wanna talk about specifically the data and transparency, the consortia helping recruit companies to the defense industrial base, consortia helping with collaboration between industry and government to get better outcomes and better solicitations and that surge capacity or quick response capacity when it's needed and help to do the market research and get industry response. Now, two more things I just wanna add. One is, does that make everything perfect? No, everything is not perfect. There are always ways to improve things. There are always things that can be done better. And it is incumbent upon DOD to manage, just like it's incumbent upon DOD to manage any aspect of acquisition. So if something goes wrong in in an acquisition in a consortia here or an OT there, that doesn't mean the entire system doesn't work because if that were the case, we would never do acquisitions. We've had problems with fixed price. We've had problems with cost plus. We've had problems with fire contracts. The question is like deploying a weapon system. Is the operational benefit better than the negative? And I think here, what we found was it is absolutely clearly the case, but that doesn't mean DOD should sit back and not do oversight, of course they should, as should everybody. So that's the first thing I wanted to mention. But the second is at the same time, we should not, I think, try to overburden consortia or OTs with so much regulation and so much oversight that it slows the process and sucks some of the value out of it. It is a delicate balance. And fortunately, I don't have to figure out that balance. Unfortunately for Margaret, she does. So it is very easy for me to say that, and I appreciate that, but we don't wanna go too far that there's too much regulation and oversight. We wanna have the right amount that there's that freedom and that flexibility and that speed, but we know what's going on, but the data is there and it can be used. I guess the last thing I want to talk about is the way forward. We have some recommendations, and in addition to the one on don't overhang it with too much regulation, there are two others that I want to call out. One is perhaps we should really try to use that follow-on production authority more than it's being used. So for example, the replacement for defense travel system was done through a consortia for the prototype. But in that case, DOD chose not to use the follow-on production authority that is in statute, and they did a sole source justification award. That slowed things down and cost more money. And I'm not sure what the benefit was of that as opposed to just using the authority that we have. Now, my understanding is it's being used more and people are starting to get more comfortable with it. Doesn't mean it should be used all the time, but I think it's something that if the authority is there, let's try to do it. And then the other thing is OTAs ultimately are not a silver bullet. My position is nothing is a silver bullet, right? Barring werewolves, nothing is a silver bullet, but it is very good when it makes sense. And when it makes sense, we should definitely use OTs. So, for example, in that House bill under floor amendment 324, there's a provision saying, hey, let's use it for installations. That seems to make a lot of sense in certain cases where it could be very useful or in Section 824 of the FY22 NDAA, Congress put out this a provision that's called recommendations on the use of other transaction authorities saying DOD give us some ideas of how else we can use it. Should we use it for services? Should we use it for o Should we use it for production without prototype? Now, this is another case of where it's Margaret's problem and not mine, so I can say this again, but that's there are great opportunities there of really trying to think when is it appropriate and how can we use it? So I want to pause there, but those are the things that I wanted to throw out there to kick off a conversation.
2: That's great. I really appreciate that Moshe. So Margaret, I will ask you for reactions, especially with the data conversation. I was really pleased and our army just seemed to always be the first to step out on implementing direction that Congress might put it. In this case, Army, again, was the first one to step out, tweak your policies on collecting data. So what are you seeing?
3: All right, so um, again, I just thank you all for having me. really excited to participate in today's conversation, and that was a lot that Moshe went over, and I largely agree with all of the points that Moshe made, and specifically focusing on the data piece. The Army, as Stephanie alluded to, is already a big proponent and kind of user of the consortia model and have been for quite some time. We sponsor eight consortia. As the Army, we work with a number of others through the broader DoD. And so we're certainly playing in this space quite a bit. We're also very significant users of OTAs. We lead the DOD in the number of the OTAs that, that we award. And when we look at the OTAs that we do award, the majority of those are through consortia versus through standalone OTA awards. And so really we are very much in this space. And so. When we start to hear concerns from Congress and auditors and others, right, in in, in a number of reports that have been written about lack of data, lack of transparency, right, it's important to us that we make changes to address those concerns because, to, to Moshe's point, right, it's important that we preserve the authority to use this tool and the flexibility of this tool. And so, in order to do that, we have to prove to Congress and to others that we are responsible stewards of taxpayers' dollars. And the way that we can do that is to start trying to get after some of these concerns regarding data and transparency. And as Stephanie mentioned, we did, the Army did lean out in response to congressional legislation and audit reports to try to get after this. And just for a little bit of background very quickly for everybody, we track all of our awards in a database called FPDSNG. Everybody's probably aware of that. And We do currently track our OTA awards in this system but the system is really not built for the nuance of OTAs. So for example, prior to 2019, there was no way within the system that you could even distinguish between a prototype OTA and a production OTA. They were just launched as OTAs in general. So trying to get the breakdown of that was very hard. We now have that ability, but there's other difficulties in tracking these things. And and one of them in particular is tracking follow-on productions of OTAs, right? It doesn't really, the system doesn't really allow you to trace the history, whether it's, prototype OTA awarded through a consortia and then straight into a production OTA awarded to that vendor, or if we awarded through an OTA or through a consortia and then decided to compete it out or go through FAR, it doesn't really allow you to trace from start to finish, but that data is really important to understand what technologies are transitioning, what consortia, we're using and what the outcomes of all of that is. And there's also no ability to differentiate between a standalone OTA and an OTA awarded through a consortia. They all look the same. And again, it's hard at an enterprise level to track that we're absolutely managing it office by office on a manual basis. They are doing their due diligence in making sure that we're aware of these things, but it's certainly not an enterprise solution. And so in order to do this, uh, a couple of things are happening. First, in the immediate, the Army leaned out and issued a new policy in November of 2021 that requires that consortium management firms actually report on a monthly basis specific data to us. And examples of that information are just general background information right on the agreement, the purpose and the goal, information on the vendor, which is something that we really couldn't see before we started collecting this. So business size, if they're considered non-traditional, if they're considered small, more information on the fee that we're paying to the consortium management firm, et cetera. And so we, that that requirement started in the second quarter of FY22. So we only have a few reports at, at this point, certainly not enough of a data set to draw any trends or conclusions from. But as we move farther down the pipe here and we do have more data, we will absolutely be able to use that to inform policy making and to help develop a strategy once we can see what any of those trends look like. And so that's the immediate, which is obviously not a 100% solution since it's still a bit of a manual drill. And so in the long term, what the Department of Defense is doing is really working to update that database, that FPDS&G system, working with GSA, all of the services are involved to get after a longer term solution that we can automatically collect that kind of information. And that information really is going to be important, right? We've got to give Congress some level of comfort that we're being responsible stewards with these taxpayers' dollars because we really want to preserve the flexibility of OTAs. And if to Moshe's point, as we look at, as Congress has directed us to look at potential expansion of this, that data is going to be incredibly important. So in the meantime, we have leaned out to, to gather that in the long term, we're hoping that it's a, more of an automated system, if that answers the question.
2: Margaret, that's great. I really appreciate those comments. And like I thought, is just like leading the thought on how do we respond to these concerns? and keep the flexibilities that are there. So I'd like to get Charlie Suzette to chime in here, not only on the data conversation, but which is important, but I know in our interviews with you, what was so remarkably different about consortia than like other acquisition strategies was the, was the collaboration that consortia provide. Can you just give an overview of how you see that collaboration has benefited the Department of Defense, how it's benefited the government, and like how it's evolved over time from your early beginnings involvement with the first consortium to
1: now. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for the opportunity. And Moshe, thank you also for all the work that you did on the report. I think it's an outstanding report and privilege, of course, to be here. I think what we discovered early on, and I don't think that's ever changed, and that is really the root of trying to develop new technology, something that's really going to be a game changer for our warfighter, does require innovation, but innovation really does require communication and collaboration. I don't think we often will see a solution coming just from one person. And so the question is, how do we create that? And in traditional power world, it's just not fostered, right? And, and what we discovered and what we can do through the OTA is something I've never seen anywhere else, and it's powerful it starts actually in collaborating around what is the requirement itself and that was hard to do yeah we can do market studies things like that but where do we get together and actually talk about the art of the possible before I issue the requirement can we talk about the physics or the manufacturability or all of those kinds of things we can collaborate around that and we do that and we can do that in a very structured way that we can hold industry days and talk about an emerging requirement then the next step which is really, I think, another very powerful aspect, and not everybody does this, but is when the government is ready to release a requirement and a solicitation, let's bring our industry, our industrial base and academia together and meet with the government and talk not just generically about the requirement, but dive into it and then provide an opportunity to have one-on-ones. So I can share not only public forum, but also in a private form. Maybe it's my IP and those kinds of things. So that's what we've created and that's what we stick to. So we have what we call collaboration events. Every time we gather up requirements and push out a solicitation to our members, we want to create an opportunity to talk from member to member so we can create partnerships, so we can get the primes to find other innovative performers than just their traditional supply chain where we can get the non-traditionals to really take an active role in participating in the dialogue and put together the very best proposals, we call them white papers, put together very best proposals in a way that has been talked through and, and collaborated with both the government and within the industry. And if we can do that, I think that's the best shot we have at solving the problem both rapidly and effectively, if that makes sense.
2: Thanks, Charlie, I really appreciate that. And um, David, I will ask you to talk about your experience with collaboration and I think specifically some comments about transitioning from prototype to production.
4: Sure and thrilled to be on here, thrilled to represent the uh, the user of the consortium model from the non-traditional contractor point of view. Our experience as a non-traditional small business working within the consortium model has been highly successful. So we have over the past four or five years executed as much business through the consortium model and the, and the OTA model as we have through all of our previous efforts through more traditional methods of engaging small business and non-traditional contractors combined. And I think that's, for us, that's a very exciting thing to be able to say. And for others in a similar position, it should be hopefully very motivating to continue to use this model to bring innovation to the DOD. So the consortium model has really helped us in a few different ways. And and Stephanie talks to this in in her report and in her case study. Uh, So one is that ability to collaborate on requirements. The fact is that writing a good requirement is really hard. And no matter how many smart people you have working on it, no matter how many times you go through the review process, no matter how many RFIs you put out there, it is difficult to get a, a perfect requirement And you're almost guaranteed to miss something in the requirements spec. Having that opportunity and that forum, which is facilitated through the consortium to collaborate on requirements with the governments allows us to, I don't want to say shape the requirements, but offer alternate solutions that meet the heart of the problem that might not be the way the requirement is written. I can tell you that if I'm looking out on, on SAM.gov and I see a solicitation, I look at the requirements and the language does not meet something that I think I can offer. I'm not going to bid to that effort because I know that a reviewer is going to look down there and say, the department says this, and you said you could bring that, and they're not the same thing. With a consortium model, we can have that discussion and say, look, I've actually got this other option B and government, I think this actually meets what you're trying to accomplish with this requirement. doesn't say it now, but I think we can get there with option B." and they have the opportunity to say, yeah, well, you're right, that does meet the intent versus the written statement, let's let's proceed, let's bid, let's see what you can do. So that's been incredibly helpful. The, the ability of the consortium to act as a clearinghouse for uh, contracts, which are then contracted through the OT model, has been incredibly helpful. We're able to go to a one-stop shop where a, a number of organizations are able to, to put solicitations. And then we're able to have a simplified proposal process to get our concepts in front of the government. Charlie said, it's a, it's a proposal. We call it a white paper. I'm glad that it's a white paper. I love the white paper. I love having the simplified process to get a concept in front of the government customer and, and, get their feedback and get them to tell me yes or no, part of that is supporting competition. So we're a small non-traditional. And I tell you, if the government is going after a big system, if, if Margaret needs to contract a weapons system, which is a major system, which has serious warfighter implications. I know that one of the major things they're considering is risk, and it is really hard to break into an industry, even with great innovation, uh, when your government customer might be looking at you and saying, the one thing you don't have is past performance on that. You've never done a similar thing at a similar scope before. And that's, that's a perfectly true statement for most non-traditionals or small businesses trying to break in. But it also is then a bottleneck to bring innovation forward. The competitive process, which is facilitated by the OTs and the consortia, allows the try before you buy. Contract a few different teams, support that teaming so that gaps can be filled by others as opposed to having one conglomerate that does it all. And and have the opportunity to really demonstrate what you can do. And that is how we've been successful. We've gone head to head with our team versus other teams, including the big primes and come out on top because we were able to show a better technology. And then the government is able to say, you know what, that just burned down my risk, I know I awarded three, $5 million contracts or whatever to to go build this prototype and 10 million of that is not actually going to go forward into the follow-on, but but I burned down my risk and I was able to bring forward innovation by actually competing and and getting something out. And then finally, what I'll say about transitioning to follow-on, it is the consortium model, I think, puts the government in the position to to be willing to consider follow-on efforts which do not look like traditional FAR efforts for delivering major capabilities. One of the ways we've been successful at taking our programs from prototype into follow on into production is by using an execution approach, which looks a lot like the collaborative teaming that we do in the consortium. So bringing together all of our teammates, which fill a variety of gaps across the team, which we need to have as a small business, non-traditional and executing as one integrated team, which looks very different from the traditional prime supplier relationship. I'm not buying things from my teammates and they're not giving me a module that then I'm strapping on as the prime integrator. We're actually working as a group and the consortium model facilitates that, allows the government to see that in action and see how it can be successful delivering at scale. Hopefully that answered some of the questions there and I'm definitely happy to take more.
2: We're great it's so great to have you David on this. Your perspective is so valuable to everybody. You're at the rubber meets the road. So we really appreciate that. So Moshe, something inspired you either in the comments or something that somebody said, so share, please. Yeah.
0: So there was a question by David Rothside in the comments that I just wanted to throw out to everybody else, which was, you know, as we're talking about collaboration, we talked a lot about collaboration with industry and government, but how can we get more collaboration of consortium members to join up and jointly provide capabilities Which is what we talk about a little bit in the report when the first consortia joint started with Icon, the desire to pool resources to really develop the best stuff for industry. So I wanted to throw that out first for Charlie and then for other people on the panel, because I thought that was a great question. How can we ferment members of the consortia to team up and do joint collaborative proposals for capabilities?
1: Totally agree. It's a challenge, first of all, right? It really is. And the pandemic did not help. Let's let's go there first. But when we had to go virtual, one of the biggest challenges that we saw was when you take out in person, you take out a certain element of human nature to meet and to discuss and to see each other and to develop those relationships. Because I'll say, I think the real answer to your question is it's a lot of work. And the way to do it is I think we have to continue to push on these industry days, these collaboration events. And instead of just creating one-on-ones with the government and an industry member or an academic institution, we need to create this speed dating, this networking between member and member. And the consortium management firm that we use, ATI, has really worked very hard over the last couple of years through organic and as well as acquisition of tools where people are really trying to figure out ways to develop effective, I like to call it speed dating, but and one of the ones that we do that I find to be very effective is we ask our prime contractors to set up a booth, if you will, a table, and then anybody can then have 15 minutes to go meet with them, talk about their technology, their capability, their interests, and to try and create more alignment between the non-traditional and the traditional defense contractor. And I think we just have to keep working at those types of methodologies to bring people together. We also do something else that I think should be expanded upon. We have what we call our members only website, right? So it's a secure website, two-factor authentication, so we can have distro level D CUI type information on the website and so you can go there and learn about every member in that consortium each member has a profile these are the technologies that I'm interested in here's the capabilities that I have here's maybe some gaps that I have and from there and all that's searchable and so it's another way to say look at I have this rolodex now of the capabilities of these 980 member organizations and I need to use that and refine my opportunities and the contact information is there as well. So I think there's no silver bullet of how to improve that partnering, but I think we've got to do all of the above. We need to have good robust information databases within our secure websites. We need to continue to drive collaboration events in person as we move forward. That's critically important. And we need to use some of these tools that are emerging that that the consortium management firms are developing. And then lastly, I would say is I don't think we're sharing best practices as well as we could. I think it's still competitive. One consortium management firm might have a certain trick or a tool or a methodology. Are we really taking a look at this and say, let's bring all of our best practices and put them on the table and let's try and promulgate those across all of these consortia in the end we're trying to do something for the warfighter and so we need to take that uniqueness element out of it and really drive home the sharing of all of our best practices at least that's what I'm in favor of
3: and I think if I could jump in here too and just offer a government perspective when we're talking about incentivizing collaboration and what we can do I think the government can do a couple of things I think as we've all talked about a lot of the value of consortia is this collaboration and the innovation that spurs from that and potentially we can start look at how we can incentivize some of these more creative teaming arrangements we can work with consortium management firms to think through what that may actually look like we can also incentivize our government personnel to work more with consortia upfront when we're refining the requirement and formalizing that requirement to hopefully bring some of those folks in a little bit earlier and get them interested early on and then we can create those partnerships moving forward. And I think similar to what Charlie said, I think the government should also be hosting more kind of collaboration days, if you will, as opposed to just these big industry days. Let's focus more on on the actual collaboration and the outcome of those events, as opposed to just kind of a networking perspective. I think also part of what we need to do in the government is look internally at our own workforce and make sure that we're educating our workforce appropriately on how to work with consortia and the best ways to do that. One of the great things about consortia is the de-risking element of the prototypes that we get to work on with you all, just given the structure of the model. And so we really need to make that clear across our workforce, right? A workforce that up until the FY16 NDAA, which really expanded use of OTAs and tied to that, our use of consortia exploded that use. So it's a relatively new world we're working in. So the FAR based world is much more black and white than the OTA prototyping with consortia world, which is more gray. And so we have to get folks comfortable kind of working in that grain. We are pushing out a number of educational resources to try to do that. DAU within the Department of Defense is creating training specific to working with consortia. I would love to partner with folks like Charlie as we look at those things and push that information out about currently existing consortia, right? The army is putting together a guide, if you will, of all of the consortia that we can work with. So the information is out there. And echoing what Charlie said, I think internally we need to share our best practices as well. We have pockets of excellence of folks and agreements officers that know how to do this really well. And we need to pull that together and promulgate that within our own workforce on our side of
4: the house. I'm, I'm gonna offer with respect to collaboration, one very simple thing that I've seen the government to do through the consortium model that I think could be a very successful incentive so you'll I have frequently seen on on solicitations receipt re, released through consortia fact-finding questions come in or even put out by the government in advance an FAQ sort of thing where the question is you know company a believes that we may have a full solution to your problem is the government open to a proposal from a single entity and the best answer I've seen to that and I've seen it several times is when the government comes back and says, Hey, you know, you, you are free to bid whatever you think is the best solution. The government currently believes that to address the full scope of, of the needs of this effort, that a a team with multiple capabilities or capacities is required and a simple statement like that in a fact finding question or released as part of the proposal is I will tell you on the industry side is a huge incentive. To not only for folks like us, the small non-traditionals to go look for, for partners, But, but to the industry primes to make sure that they are looking for partnership opportunities. So my one request to the government to drive collaboration, if you're going to only do one thing would be, do not be afraid to say clearly that you currently believe that collaboration is the right way to achieve this, because we are listening to that. Others are listening to that. And folks who start as grudging bedfellows may end up being great collaborators once you actually get going
3: absolutely david thank you i'll take that back that's the exactly the type of best practice that we're talking about promulgating across the force when appropriate and so we'll absolutely take that back
2: so we're getting lots of great questions and conversation in the chat and i just want to highlight a question that al rinaldi asked al comes from a long time working at picatinny arsenal doing consortia activities otas and he asked How does consortia make sure that they don't do inherently governmental activities?
1: Yeah, I think it's a short answer and it's easily stated because it's well-defined in the statement of work, if you will, between the government and the consortium management firm. It's explicitly stated exactly what it is that they provide. It really isn't a fine line. It's just ink on a paper. Now, not all contracting commands may want to use a consortium management firm for certain things and maybe others for some other things but all that is defined in the in the overarching other transaction agreement and i don't see that as really an issue i do think the opportunity The opportunity is to be creative on the DOD side to say, let's use as much of the power of the consortium management firm as we can, because they're going to provide inherent capabilities, whether it's through surge or different ways to help support the acquisition process. And I think we should be as thoughtful as we can as we go into an overarching OTA, but that's how it's done. Yeah, easy. Now I still have my mic off of mute. And so I was wondering, is it okay if I answer a question up here? It's
0: definitely Pick up a question,
2: answer
1: it. It's something that Joel House stated and I find it intriguing. We've talked a lot about collaboration, which is wonderful, it's in my DNA. But let's also talk about something that the consortium does that's very important. There are times where we have a requirement for something very niche, right? I get that. Maybe it's a new molecule or a propellant ingredient in my world or an explosive. And you're right. This isn't about necessarily in in fulfilling that requirement, how to create a team of 15 different contractors. What the consortium model does that's so powerful is number one, it makes it a level playing field for everybody to participate in seeing what the information is. If all I have to do is go to spam.gov, I guarantee you that is not a level playing field, right? It's for non-traditional. Now, if I go to an industry day and I can see what's being presented and I can ask good questions, I can interact with that customer, I can make an informed business decision. Is this something that I think I can go after? And what I find is the power of that event and the power of that process yields more proposals on average for a given requirement. And so I also don't want to forget about the power of competition. For us, at least, we're seeing an average of six to nine white papers proposals for, on average, for every requirement. That's phenomenal. In, in the past, you know, if I threw something out on FedBizOps or SAM.gov and said, I need this formulation, would I get that that kind of a return every time? Would I get that level of understanding in the white paper? And the final thing is that the power of being able to have a conversation in real time with the government while I'm writing my white paper, we haven't even talked about that power. That is phenomenal. I never would. It was always a blackout period, Right. Out goes the RFP. You don't talk unless you have formal questions, etc. Here we are actually collaborating with the customer in real time to make sure that we can tailor our technology to meet their needs as best as possible. And everybody has that ability to do that level of collaboration with the customer during the white paper development process. So I don't know. Thanks to Joel for your comment but I wanted to at least underscore some of the other elements of, the, of this wonderful model. And sorry, I'm, I'll shut up now. Thank
2: you. Charlie, that, I appreciate it. That's really great. And that's something that we included in the report that we found is that the training and the support that the consortia and the consortia management firms provide to the non-traditional contractors is so invaluable. And there's so many companies out there that are trying to figure out how to do business with the government. Either they think they have a solution or they, you know, they're just patriotic and they want to support, and there's a lot of different avenues that are out there. And I'm finding after publishing this report that we are had a lot of folks come forward and say, oh, wow, here's an avenue that I can potentially get involved. And I see some of those questions on the chat. And I just like to highlight that the report has a list Of the 42 consortia that we were able to identify at the time of publishing the report, it has their name, it has their website, their purpose, it has the fees. So it has all that information and you can go through that. So continuing the conversation on the value of consortia, Moshe, I see, I see you're chomping at the bit. So what you got?
0: Yeah. So I think it was Greg that asked about allies and consortia. And so I did want to raise that because if you look at the statute, right, under subsection F of 10 U.S.C. 4022, which is follow on production, it specifically says, and I apologize if I'm looking to the size, but it specifically talks about my transaction includes all individual prototypes awarded under the transaction to a consortium of United States industry and academic institutions. So I know that there are different policies and different consortium. But that would seem to be language that would be a barrier for more cooperation with allies. Now, as backdrop, I think it was just yesterday that DHS put out a request for a collaborative DHS Israel bird grant that they want to give $1.5 million to cybersecurity projects, to multiple cybersecurity projects. If we're doing things like that with allies and we're doing it with England and we're doing it with the Five Eyes it would seem to me that it would make sense to have more flexibility for consortia to bring those people together for a variety of reasons. But that language, I think, acts as a little bit of a barrier to that. So I did want to mention that. So I agree, Greg, that I don't think we're maximizing what we could be potentially doing with consortia with our allies.
1: Can I offer maybe a counterpoint, a little bit of counterpoint, and it's different, right? For different people. For us in armaments, everything's on the munitions control list. For us in armaments, everything is pretty much ITAR regulated. For us, everything is CUI these days. And because of those challenges as a consortium, not as the DOD side, and it is in our other transaction agreements that we do require that they be U.S. companies and. Now they can be foreign owned like B or any number of parent companies, but they have to have all the firewalls in place because for us to try and administer these other transaction agreements, contracts, if you will, and know that we are in fact protecting the information, it would be very challenging for us to do so otherwise. Now having said that, what we encourage and do is that we want foreign technology. Why wouldn't we? And so they can absolutely participate as a subcontractor, and that's okay, and we would encourage that, but in terms of actually being a prime and being a member, we would have no way to control the flow of information that is, is controlled upon classified information, let alone, of course, most of our work is classified too. So it becomes very challenging, so what we do is we handle it by, in short, encouraging as much Access to foreign technologies as we can and partnering, and they are non-traditionals, right? And so that's an added benefit, but we just don't have them priming the work because of the nature of the security limitations that we have and the work that we're doing.
2: Thank you, Charlie. And we're getting a lot of comments. Thanking from Mark Pickett from Datsy is on here. Greg Sanders is saying thank you to everybody. Uh-huh. Just final comments from everybody. We go around the room. So we'll go in reverse order. David, if you've got any final comments, and then we'll hit up Margaret and then Charlie and Moshe.
4: Sure. Again, Stephanie, thank you for having me on this panel. This has been a, a great experience and very happy to be able to share my story with others and hopefully drive further innovation and deliveries for the warfighter. If I could leave with one thing to say, I guess it would be this I think the consortium model. With OTAs has been extraordinarily successful for my company personally, and I think for our government customers in acquiring the the innovative products that they need to address their solution space. The day before we got our first award through our consortia, we had precisely the same capabilities, innovation, and technologies on the shelf as we did the day after. And I will tell you that there are a hundred other non-traditional organizations and people out there right now who have the capabilities and the innovation that the the government and the warfighter needs to solve their hardest problems, who are just waiting for the opportunity. I think the consortium model, is a spectacular way to provide that opportunity to these organizations and individuals. I know Moshe opened by saying that nothing is a silver bullet, and I'm sure he is right. But man, when it works, the consortium model is spectacularly effective. And my sincere hope is that we learn from our success stories as much as we learn from some of the the cautionary tales to drive forward uh, further innovation uh, throughout the DoD, uh, throughout the IC, and to really link our supply chain to our warfighter. The opportunity is out there. Uh, Let's go get it. And it's the other folks on this panel who are going to help us get there. And I'm going to be sitting on the back end looking to help uh, once, uh, once the solicitations do come out. So I'll leave with that.
2: Thanks, David. We really appreciate your participation. Margaret, final comments from you on the report, on the comments made today where you guys are gonna go with the Army on this.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So so again, uh, I'll echo the sentiments of my fellow panel members. Thank you so much for the invitation to participate today. I think the Army has been a longstanding participant in the consortium model, if you will, and I don't, that's not going to change. I, I think we absolutely see the value that this business model brings, particularly in bringing new innovation and new folks into the government ecosystem. And I think even within the last couple of years, that has really been proven as we relied heavily on consortia, as we Armandio led the way with Operation Warp Speed and getting that done in an amazing amount of time. And a lot of that was because of the consortia that we were able to leverage there. And I think we're absolutely still moving in that direction. I do think what's next for us though, is to address A couple of those key concerns that I highlighted earlier and that Congress and auditors have highlighted, particularly regarding lack of transparency, we want to retain the authority and so we have to get our arms around that piece of it and make sure that we are being responsible stewards of taxpayers' dollars. I think it will also, all of the information that we're going to collect as we start to move out with getting this information will drive data-driven kind of policy decisions on how we go about working with consortia and specifically how we use some of the other authorities that are closely related to it, like prototype into production OTAs, for example. We're continuing to push additional educational resources and just other resources in general out to the workforce to make sure that we're well postured to do that. And importantly, as we look at this, what's very important to myself and my leadership is that anything that we do do as it relates to consortia or OTAs is to retain the flexibility that this business model does provide to us. We don't want to levy so much policy and bureaucratic requirements on top of it that you then negate the benefit of the tool and the business model itself. And so we are keeping a keen eye on that. And Congress has specifically directed that we look at kind of the future of OTA and potential expansion of it. And so I know our fellow services and OSD are really looking at that and considering whether we wanna to go to Congress and recommend or request kind of any expansion of the authority. And I think we're gonna continue learning from what we're getting right in some areas, maybe where we could be improving and we'll go from there. But again, thank you everybody for letting me join in today's conversation.
2: Thanks so much, Margaret. We really appreciate you joining. And Charlie, final comments for you on how we can continue this conversation. Inside consortia, outside consortia, please, I love your thoughts.
1: Yeah, I think this has been wonderful. And one side note, I think Alan Thomas asked about IP very quickly. You should never, IP is handled very seriously. It's taken seriously. It's all managed between you and the government in your data rights. And it's really not that different. And if you need any more questions, you can reach out to me. I'd be happy to help you on that. My concluding thoughts are as follows. I do have concerns, and that is some people will say, we work hard at it. We can always snatch death out of the the jaws of victory. I worry that we aren't as innovative in the process of doing the OTs as we should be. And Margaret said, look it, we don't want to add more layers. And I actually think process creep, right, as an engineer, process creep is real, and it's just as real in our administrative processes. And I see a tendency, whether it's through legal or through procurement or through wherever, where we're starting to add, we're starting to add. And I think there's a real danger in that. I think we've got to stay really lean. If our goal, honestly, is to get non-traditionals, then we got to look like that, and I see a trend. if we're not careful we're going to keep asking for more and asking for more and i think that could be a real downside i think many of these otas already are starting to add more regiment that's not necessary it's not really solving the real problem of getting prototypes built and delivered so i would just say we need the forums to be addressing the how to's how to make sure that our aos or agreement officers don't start looking like chaos, right? And so to make a simple statement, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to protect that process creep. And so I would hope that's a form that we need to really look at. We need to consider it with DAU. We need to consider it with our headquarters and our services level because they're not always in touch with what's going on the ground floor and they need to understand what we're doing on a day-to-day basis to appreciate that we don't want to mess this model up. And so that's one of my fears. I'll end on a more positive note though, which is we are making a huge difference. It's phenomenal. And one of the things we don't do very well is articulate our success stories. It's just not who we are. We're engineers, but we are making amazing changes. If we look at what's going on with the Futures Command and long range precision fires, or I could go on and on about the things that we're doing. It is a phenomenal activity. Even in just this one consortium, we have, about 700 active projects, and every project is solving a national security issue. It's an exciting time, and we should be proud of what we're doing. Thank you for letting me be here.
2: Thanks, Charlie, I appreciate those final comments. And i just like to highlight the amount of data in the report that supports the good work that we found in the consortia. Over 75% of the members of consortia are non-traditional defense contractors. And oh, by the way, 67% of the awards are given to non-traditional defense contractors as leads. So we found a lot of the criticisms, anecdotal criticisms that we've heard about consortia not to be proven by the data. And I look forward to the data, as Margaret talked about being continued to be collected and making policy, data-driven policy decisions. And so Moshe, final comments and maybe your thoughts on how do we continue this conversation?
0: Yes, yeah, so I'll give one very quick final comment, which is we talked about expanding the industrial base. I think it's not actually expanding the industrial base, it's stopping the bleeding because the industrial base has shrunk by about 40%. We need, DOD needs, our nation needs, to tap that industrial base and we can't afford to lose companies like David's who aren't working with us because we don't have the systems and associations to work with it. So I wanted to mention that, but more interesting as you just asked Stephanie and as comments from from David and Charlie and Margaret, maybe we need to write another report and follow up on this and say, how is DOD managing consortia? And dig into DAU and talk to the consortia about their best practices and take less of a data approach and more of a how is the system working? How's it being managed? What are there best practices mechanisms? Maybe that's the report we have to do. What do you think?
2: I'm in. I think that's a great idea. So thanks, everybody. We'll see ya.
1: This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time.